Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hi, everyone. It's Kareem, the voice of Simon Fairchild and the Eternal Tavern Keeper. Today, I'm here to tell you about Celine, a podcast recently launched on the RQ Network. Step into Celine. A city cloaked in darkness and teeming with horrors. From evil headmistresses to murderous marionettes, black worm parasites, haunted hotels and eerie sleepwalkers. Meet the paranormal investigators of Needle Street, newly arrived to battle the encroaching malevolence. Inspired by Poe, Edward Gorey and Agatha Christie, their adventures promise twisted mysteries and unforgettable characters. Immersive audio brings the city to life, blending dark humor with bone-chilling suspense. Join the investigators as they navigate Celine's shadows, where mystery and intrigue await at every turn. Experience the thrill of Celine in Dolby Atmos. That's S-E-L-E-N-E. Or visit www.rusticquill.com for more information. Hi everyone, Alex here. I'd just like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. 
Mark Spark, Brandon Chappelle, Florence Aze, Gilligan Mungus, Emilia Hoyos, Edward Peter Delmonico, Liam Hygis, Sean and Miranda Goodell, Daniel Armenti, Peter Larson. Thank you all. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to join them, go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rusty Quill and take a look at our rewards. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 110 Creature Feature Martin Blackwood, Archival Assistant at the Magnus Institute, recording statement number 0121403. Statement of Alexia Crawley, given March 14th, 2012. Statement begins. It's hard to put my relationship with Dexter Banks into words. It was a complicated thing, built on well over a decade of disdain and interdependence. In many ways, I was closer to him than his wife, Not that I ever touched the odious little freak, and while those film obsessives that insist I basically directed all his films do us both a disservice, it is true that without me he would never have reached the fame and high regard he enjoys. Enjoyed. Cinematographer. Such an ornate term, yet still so vague. I often wonder if that's to blame for how overlooked we are as a profession. Or even worse, that dry title, Director of Photography. But we are the true artists. A director may quite literally call the shots, but it is the cinematographer that makes them. We choose the angles, the lighting, pretty much everything that you see on the screen. If the camera is a brush, then we are the hand, the arm, the eye. The director's basically just the mouth, making pointless noise while the hand does the actual work. Almost Every famous director that you know with a distinctive visual style has simply managed to lock down a talented DOP. I first worked with Dexter back in 1997, working as a cinematographer on Red Ronin. It feels odd to say now, but I was genuinely excited to work with him at the time. I'd seen some of his earlier work, uh, Wasteland 7, Dolores, maybe a couple of shorts, and I remember thinking how refreshing it was going to be, working with a director who really got film who was steeped in their history and drew inspiration from forgotten corners of the medium. Even some corners that should have stayed forgotten. Unfortunately, that turned out to be the only thing he understood. You see, Dexter Banks lived movies. As far as I could tell, every single aspect of his life had revolved around them. His dad had owned a small cinema near Fairfax Avenue, and as a teenager he'd bounced between working there and a small rental store that specialised in foreign films specifically Italian horror movies and East Asian martial arts. 
I never met anyone who knew as much about films and as little about anything else. Working with him, it soon became clear that all he was interested in doing was recreating things he had seen, taking scenes and music that he loved from those old, obscure corners of cinema, and then constructing whatever patchwork narrative would allow him to shoot his own versions of them. Whatever dialogue he didn't repurpose and had to write himself was stilted and slow, trying to mirror the stylization that surrounded it, but failing utterly. I once mentioned to him the idea of working with a writer. I didn't do it again. Red Ronin, for instance, was based on a Japanese film from the early 70s called Blade of the Avenger. It hit on the same dynamics and scenes as the original, but was set in modern-day Arizona, following a nihilistic ex-marine in the fictional town of Funnel. It wasn't strictly a remake, though, because Dexter would constantly call me into the screening room to show me some other samurai or western that I'd never heard of before jumping up at the appropriate scene and shouting, That was it! We do that! And I did. I'm very good at my job. I've been doing it almost 30 years now, five at the BBC before crossing the Atlantic, and I know exactly what I'm doing. It turned out that I have a talent for capturing the feeling of older movies, mirroring them whilst still keeping the shots fresh. Who cares if it bored me to creative tears, it was exactly the sort of bull that critics love, and Red Ronin was the first of Dexter's film to get an Oscar nomination, though it ended up losing out to The English Patient. Not really surprising, it was too genre for the Academy anyway. I didn't realise it, but by that point I was already locked in with Dexter. I'd held some ambitions about directing myself one day, but it soon became obvious that that wasn't going to happen. Maybe if I'd got a feature under my belt before I was outed as trans, it might have been different, but as it was, that revelation burned too many bridges, and when the dust had settled, it was made abundantly clear to me that I was never going to get a movie of my own and it was either cinematography or nothing. So I stayed. I was in a bad place for the next couple of years, and blindly accepted the DOP position on two more of Dexter's films, Hell's Company and Leroy Slake. Both were big hits, and by the time I properly felt myself again, I had ended up with my career so tied up in Dexter's that chasing other gigs wasn't really an option. I still have no idea how intentional it was on his part, but he was definitely aware that it was my work that elevated his films above simple homage. His periodic bouts of petty jealousy and snide bitterness had made that abundantly clear. Five years and three movies in, it was clear that we needed each other almost as much as we hated each other. I don't know when he first mentioned his spider film. It didn't bubble out into a full obsession until two years ago, but I know he'd talked about it plenty before that. Whenever arguments over a project would last late into the night, and if he was very drunk, he'd get kind of quiet and then he'd ask me, yet again, if I'd ever seen Kumo Gatabete Iru. I think that was the name anyway, something like that. He was normally slurring quite badly when he said it. He thought it translated to the spiders that devour, but... A Japanese friend once told me it was actually closer to just spiders are eating. According to Dexter, Kumo was an old tokusatsu movie which he believed had come out sometime in the mid to late 60s. It was about a spider, just the one despite the title, that grew to a colossal size and terrorised a small unnamed island off the coast of Kagoshima. 
What struck him about it, though, was the utter absence of anything resembling a hero or protagonist. No one fought against the monster, and although there were vignettes in the lives of those under the spider's shadow, they all ended the exact same way, with the character in question marching slowly and calmly into its waiting jaws. Whenever Dexter described this, his eyes would widen and he'd start trying to recreate the sound that they made as they were eaten. He always claimed he wasn't doing it right, but the noises he ended up making were unsettling enough. As far as either of us could determine, the film never existed. At least, not in any form that left a traceable record. Dexter had folded it up in a lot more detail than I had ever bothered to, and had checked with collectors of obscure film paraphernalia and long-defunct Japanese production studios. He actually showed a pretty surprising aptitude for the language, but it was just dead end after dead end. I ended up watching half a dozen different giant spider movies with him over our time together, and none of them were right. He'd just watch, muttering under his breath, no, 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 and chewing on the back of his thumb. It wasn't something I ever really minded. Out of all the many and varied quirks of Dexter Banks, his minor obsession with a Japanese spider movie that may or may not have ever existed was one of the least unpleasant. At least until I got the call about his final project. He told me over the phone that he was producing a new film, that it was going to be his masterpiece. Then he started to describe it, and I don't know how much of what I felt was deja vu, and how much was just dread. I asked if he had found a copy of the film, or a script, but he just laughed. Better, he said. I found the book it was based on. Then he hung up, and I was left sitting there feeling this gnawing apprehension that I just couldn't place. I realised what had disturbed me later. It was such a small thing, but it really nagged at me. It was the idea that Dexter would ever describe a book as better than a film. That sounds like I'm insulting him, but you need to know him to understand. Film was everything to him. Other media might as well not have existed. Regardless, he went into production. He called it Widow's Weave, and while the script pages he brought were apparently based on this unnamed book of his, the shots were drawn from his memories of the first film version, assuming it existed anywhere outside of his head, of course. Part of me secretly assumed Dexter had simply dreamed the movie up and this book was... I don't know. It didn't matter, not really. There wasn't any question about whether or not I was working on it. It was a Dexter Banks film, and my name was basically on the credits already. The crew were mostly regulars he'd worked with before, but weirdly for him, he seemed to take almost no interest in casting at all. He asked Debbie Connor, our casting director, to get him as many no-name, untested hopefuls as the script needed. Bear in mind that at this point, any A-lister would have killed to be in a Dexter Banks picture, but he didn't care. For all he kept telling me about how this was his dream project that he was electrified to finally be making, he seemed to have almost entirely checked out of the process of actually making it. There was one exception to this. He claimed to be working with Neil Ligorio to make the spider. Now you might never have heard his name before, but I guarantee you you'll have seen his work. From the mid-70s right into CGI, Ligorio was the name in practical creature effects. Suit work, stop motion, animatronics, whatever the method, he was the master. If you've watched any genre films at all from before 2005, there's basically no chance you haven't seen one of his creatures. 
His early work was strictly horror, but in his prime he worked on basically any blockbuster that used practical effects for monsters or aliens. I'd had the pleasure of working with him way back in 1989 on Orbit, a medium-budget sci-fi vehicle for some ageing action star. Neil was working on a 12-foot-tall animatronic robot that featured heavily in the climax. The picture was, unsurprisingly, a flop, but I still remember his work. How he brought a lump of wood and steel to life. The, the huge, intricate mechanisms that allowed his crew to puppet it into motion that was so natural you could forget that the back of it was completely hollow. Out of all of the odd changes to Dexter's behaviour, his excitement over working with Neil Ligorio was the one thing that I shared with him. Not that I got a chance to do anything with that excitement. Once production started, Dexter became secretive and jumpy. He told us he'd set up a workshop for Ligorio and his team in one of the larger empty spaces on the lot, but no one except him was to go inside or make any contact with the practical effects department. It was odd, but everyone knew better than to argue. Once Dexter had an idea in his head, he would throw you off the set for trying to change it. When it really needed to happen, people generally looked to me to do so since I was one they considered unfireable. And this time, I did, saying that I'd worked with Neil before and would love a chance to catch up with him. Dexter curtly explained that Neil had become reclusive in his retirement and had only agreed to work on this picture on condition of absolute privacy. I didn't push the issue. It didn't seem like the battle to waste my energy on. And there were certainly plenty more battles once shooting began. If you're wondering how easy it is to recreate shots that only exist in the hazy memory of an eccentric or to frame scenes when you only get the typo-riddled script the morning before, I can tell you, not easy. Not easy at all. And Dexter's constant outbursts didn't help, throwing people off the set for the smallest imagined offences or throwing away a whole day's shoot because it just didn't feel right. We were burning through money and goodwill faster than I had ever seen, even on the most slapdash of his earlier projects. The cast really impressed me though. Most of them were fresh out of drama school with maybe a couple of ads under their belt and a few older faces who'd clearly spent most of their life hurling themselves at closed doors until now. Most impressive to me though was a guy called Brandon Olmar. He was playing the closest thing the film had to a protagonist, a homeless ex-Methodist minister who'd found himself on the island by chance and served as a connecting thread, wandering between the scenes and the vignettes of the inhabitants after each ended with their march to the spider. Brandon took to the role immediately, with a gravity and a weariness that I don't think could have been entirely feigned. He was the only one who didn't seem excited by the movie and spent his off hours smoking and reading quietly in one of the trailers. It was a shame because, for whatever reason, he also seemed to be the only one that Dexter would listen to. I only saw them talking once or twice, but every time Dexter would be rapt, nodding at whatever Brandon might have to say. Of course, I never really had time to think on it. I was finding it an almost impossible task to get even the most basic of shots, with Dexter constantly demanding the whole setup be changed for no reason. Like I said, I'm excellent at my job but giving him what he wanted from the camera work relied on him actually knowing it himself. There was a frenzied, nervous energy to his instructions, and if I didn't know any better, I might have even said that he wasn't just afraid the shots might not work, he was afraid of the idea. And so it was for the first few weeks. Dexter clearly wasn't sleeping. 
He had insisted on using old equipment and avoided digital almost entirely, to the point where several of the crew were using pieces of kit they'd never even seen before. This meant that a work print had to be made manually for the dailies, something he refused to let anyone else do. Once shooting wrapped, he'd be in the editing room for hours, preparing dailies, although they shouldn't have needed editing at all. And when we watched them, I'd often noticed that certain shots were missing, stuff I was certain that we'd filmed. I brought this up with him once, and he called me a liar to my face. I only interrupted him when he was preparing dailies once. An actress who was slated to be shooting the next day had taken violently ill, and the crew needed his sign-off to change the schedule. No one else dared to go in, so once again, it was down to me to head into that tiny room alone. It was dark inside, lit only by what spilled in through the open doorway. I could hear a sound like turning of an old film reel, but I couldn't say where from. I stood there, unable to step inside, not because of fear, but because the space inside was threaded all over with film strips. Up and down, one side to the other, wrapping around and through each other. I gingerly reached out and touched one, and as I did, Dexter seemed to emerge from the darkness. At first, I thought he was taller than usual, but then I realised that he was suspended, ever so slightly, by the strips of film, his feet a good couple of inches off the floor. He was very calm, as he asked what I wanted, and when I stutteringly explained the situation, he just nodded and said we should feel free to rearrange however we liked. Then he closed the door and I left, trying very hard to convince myself that he had only had two arms. Shooting continued, but there was a growing awareness throughout the crew that we had still seen nothing from Neil Ligorio. No one had met him on set or spotted him or his team entering or leaving the workshop where the spider was supposedly being constructed. No one had heard the sound of work being done in there, and the rumour was that Dexter had finally lost it, and the workshop was empty. We had run through all the scenes that could be done without it, and everyone was getting really impatient. Finally, Dexter announced it was time for the unveiling, for the spider, for Kumo to make its appearance. We were all excited as we assembled outside the workshop, but there was a nervous energy in the air that day. It was about as cold as it ever gets in LA, but the shiver that passed through us when he told us it was time was something else entirely. Dexter told us the actors would see it first. He gave no reasoning for this, and silenced the outcry from a couple of the crew with a vicious glare. He then gathered up the cast and, with Brandon leading them, took them through a small door in the side of the workshop, and they disappeared inside. I've thought back over those minutes so many times, trying to decide if I'd heard or seen anything that might have explained what happened inside that building, but in the end I have to admit that I didn't. Minutes passed, then half an hour as we waited impatiently for Dexter or the others to return. It seems like a sick cosmic joke that that was the day the press broke the news of Neil Ligorio's death. Half an hour after the cast walked into that building, one of the grips stumbled across the news story whilst idly checking his phone. Ligorio had been privately suffering from Parkinson's for almost a decade, and had been bedridden in his Connecticut home for the last year. We knew then that whatever was going on inside that building, it was not Neil Ligorio debuting a new animatronic creation. 
Once again, all eyes turned to me. I'm still not entirely sure what I saw on the other side of that door. I probably saw nothing, like the cops who arrived shortly afterwards. The place was entirely empty after all, just as the rumours had always said. But I wouldn't be here talking to you if I thought that was true, now would I? Because I remember that first moment. That instant of looking up when I first entered. I saw it, perfectly interwoven, with a hundred cocoons writhing and dangling, stretching out far above me. And in its centre, those black and shining eyes that focused on my entrance. The legs that worked so fast as to be a blur. The fangs that dripped their poison onto Dexter Banks. Then... In a moment it was all gone, scuttling up and into nowhere, pulling its impossible web behind it. I never knew how to describe my relationship with Dexter, and I still don't. How he was complicit, and how much he was simply caught in his own neuroses and fears, I don't know. I know he didn't deserve what happened to him. I found the book, by the way, and I burned it. If I ever track down the man who used to own it, I might just burn him too. Statement ends. I think Alexia might be a bit too late for that. I mean, I think it sounds like a Jürgen Leitner book. About spiders. <laughs> Glad John didn't have to read this one. Anyway, I know he's not a fan. Although this one wasn't too bad, actually. I... Anyway, this is, I suppose, one explanation for the disappearance of Dexter Banks, along with almost a hundred cast members, back in 2012. There's not a lot I can really add that hasn't been already dissected by a hundred different tabloids, magazines, and mystery shows. Even the, um, arachnid angle has been covered, as it seems that when we weren't a lot of help, Alexia Crawley told her full story to the press. She was not treated kindly and refuses to discuss the events any further. Poor thing. Yeah, but Pesira did manage to get hold of a few things from recent LAPD files that haven't been released to the public yet, though she's a bit cagey as to how she got them. Apparently, over the last five years, every February, a corpse is found washed up on Redondo Beach. It'll be a shriveled husk with all moisture and internal organs apparently removed. These corpses are usually unidentifiable, but the one that washed up last year was confirmed to be Chadwick Frazier, an aspiring actor who went missing in 2012 and whose IMDb page lists a final credit for Widow's Weave. Um, th th that's it. Now that doesn't make sense. Can he even do that? I don't know. I guess so. I mean, so what, he can just reach into your head and put something in there? I don't know. I guess so. I mean, does it even have to be a true thing? Do we, do we know for sure he's not lying? Like, like magically lying? I don't know. Right, 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 sorry. I just... It's a lot to take in, you know? Mostly for Melanie, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Sorry. Look, I'm not the one you need. We can't just ignore it. Well, yeah, but what do we... We didn't even know that that was something he could do. What if there's other stuff he could do to we us? We are not letting him get away with it. I didn't say that. Look, Martin, I know you care. I know you do. But caring isn't enough. 
You can't just stand next to someone with a cup of tea and hope everything's going to be alright. That's not fair. You don't even know me. Prove it. We need to do something. Because if we just let him... Oh, hi! Hey! Hey, Melanie! I, I, can, can I get you a cup of tea? So she told you, then. We need everyone, if we're going to have any chance. Right. What about Tim? Tim is... Elias is watching him too closely. He's probably watching me, too. We, uh, we could try the tunnels. Uh, John says they might help. Right. Or maybe when he's not paying attention. Hmm? Distracted, like during your um your performance review. Wait, what do you mean? Yeah, what? Well, I was heading out and... Martin, you remember you knocked over that huge stack of papers? Uh, uh, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Besides, I cleaned them up. But not in the right order. And when I brought them up to Elias yesterday, he asked why they were messed up. You didn't tell him it was me. It's not the point, Martin. The point is... He wasn't watching you. He was busy. Yep. Hang on. Not here. The tunnels. Right, right, right. Melanie, I'm... I'm really sorry that... I'm just sorry. Yeah. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Today's episode was written by Jonathan Sims and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To subscribe, view associated material, or join our Patreon, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us online, tweet us at the Rusty Quill. Visit us on Facebook or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Join our communities on the forum via the website or on Reddit at r slash the Magnus Archives. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. 
<clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Hi, everyone. It's Kareem, the voice of Simon Fairchild and the Eternal Tavern Keeper. Today, I'm here to tell you about Divisor, a podcast on the RQ Network. Divisor is a dark science fiction audio drama with elements of horror from Harlan Guthrie, the mastermind behind the unsettling and addictive series Malevolent. In this immersive tale, we follow Sun, a young man who awakens aboard a spaceship bound for Earth on a mission to recolonize a desolate planet. However, Sun's journey takes a sinister turn, and he discovers unsettling truths about his world and himself. The entire series is available for you to listen to now. Search for Divisor wherever you listen to podcasts. That's D-E-V-I-S-E-R. Or visit www.divisor.ca or www.rustyquill.com for more information.